just continues to escalate. It intensifies um, to the point of their complete rejection of him and then his warning to them of what that would mean. That if you're going to completely reject me, these are the consequences. And in many ways, the, this portion of Matthew provides the turning point for the whole emphasis of the book of Matthew. Up until this point, Jesus has been teaching and he's been making points and then he's been giving um, illustrations. And from this point on, in chapter 13, he starts to turn into using parables as far as his primary form of teaching. Two weeks ago in Matthew, we saw that Jesus would come as a servant who would heal and restore. That he came for hope for all the people, to offer hope to all people, both the Jew and the Gentile. He, he came and proclaimed the truth of God's kingdom, and, but he did it in a way that was peaceful. He didn't quarrel with people. He didn't argue with people. He just sort of humbly stated truth. He had compassion on sinful people, uh, including the ones who were the most rejected by society. The battered reed and the smoldering wick. Uh, in verse 20, it sort of offered that sense of hope. And in all of this, you just saw the peacefulness and the tranquility of Jesus. But in the midst of all his peacefulness and tranquility, the Pharisees were getting angrier and angrier and angrier, which just really prepared the way for today's scripture. And in this morning's text, you can just sort of break it down as the beginning of this confrontation with the healing. And then in verses 23 and 24, this twofold response to what Jesus was doing. And then Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verses 25 through 29, and then the warning against blasphemy in verses 30 and 32, and finally the principle of what's in your heart that we see in uh, verses 33 through 37. So it's a lot of verses, but they're just packed with this whole aspect of really looking back and saying, what is your heart condition? So take a few minutes and go ahead and read Matthew chapter 12, verses 23 through 22 through 37. It's on the sermon notes. It's in the Bible. So check it on your cell phone. Check it on your iPad. Check it in the Bible. Check it on the sermon notes. But take a few minutes and go ahead and just read through that. A man was demon possessed, who was demon possessed, was brought to Jesus. The effect of this possession was that he was blind and mute. 
Jesus healed him so that he could once again see and once again able to talk. That is it. That's a brief report. And it shows that the real point of the healing wasn't just the healing, but it was the message that was going to follow the healing. And we see that the people were amazed, wondering, could this be the son of David? And the way the Greek text puts it, it's like this question that indicates that we're really not totally sure of the answer. It's sort of like, this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? So it's sort of this question and then almost hoping for the answer. So the people are wondering if Jesus is the Messiah, not so much the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated Jesus for a variety of reasons. We've seen it up until this point. Jesus does not honor them the way that they believe that they should be honored. He doesn't honor them the way that the people honor him or them. Uh, Jesus has not followed their legalistic rules and rituals. In fact, he constantly tells them that their legalistic rules and rituals are not biblical. They have nothing to do with who God is. Jesus teaches with authority things that are contrary to what the Pharisees have been teaching. But probably more than any other reason, the people were starting to follow Jesus instead of them. You know, they're following, they're following Jesus. So what, do we, what can we do to get the people back to following us? They made out like they were supremely concerned about the things of God. They made out like they were supremely concerned about the people of God. But for the most part, it was a show. Uh, because what they really liked was the prestige, the honor, and the power. That's not much different today. That people like prestige, honor, and power. And so sometimes we may act like we're really concerned about the things of God, concerned about people, when really it's, what am I getting out of it? And that's really been the sin of the church in the United States. Um, it's probably been the sin of the church throughout the centuries that instead of just loving people well, we want people to love us well. And so that's just, you know, there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. So what was going on in that day is going on today. It impacts me differently being a pastor than it may other people, but I see that, that danger. Uh, by this time, they had utterly and finally rejected all of God's efforts for them to claim Christ, uh, which leads to the accusation. The only thing we can do is constantly try to discredit Jesus. So really, Jesus didn't heal under the power of God. It was Satan. It was Beelzebub, um, which all kinds of different interpretations of where that name came from. It could have been from a takeoff from Baal, Prince of Baal. It could have been, it's also interpreted as Lord of the Flies. It's also interpreted as Lord of the House. So there's all kinds of different ways that this could be interpreted. But no matter how you interpret it, it's, it's, it's Satan. And so he's calling it that. And so the leaders 
were therefore trying to turn the people against Jesus by claiming his miracles were empowered by Satan. The reply of Jesus in verses 25 through 37 records how ridiculous this charge is and how he responds to it through logic. Um, but first of all, take a look at verse 25. And it says, But knowing their thoughts, he said to them. He hasn't heard them conspiring. He hasn't heard anything. He has just knows their thoughts. And so his response isn't because somebody came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, do you know what these guys are talking about? Do you know what they're doing? He's God. He already knows what's going on in their thoughts. Um, so he goes on to say, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. Jesus' argument is very clear. Any kingdom, city, house that is divided against itself will fall. Take that one step further. Because we know that in a, in a relationship, if two people are divided, there's going to be a chance that that relationship is going to fall. We know that in government. We've seen it in our own government, how divisive things are going because there's just this huge divide. But take it personally. What about when we're divided in ourselves? Am I going to serve God? Am I going to serve myself? You know, any kingdom that's divided will fall. And so a lot of the struggles, a lot of the issues that we face ourselves is because we're trying to live a divided life. And so this is exactly the thing that Jesus is saying. You can't do it. Any logical person knows that a kingdom divided against itself will fall. So their argument was completely absurd. Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. And even he knows that his kingdom cannot stand if he fights against himself. Second, their accusation was inconsistent with what was being practiced by the Pharisees. Because their own Pharisees were going out and performing exorcisms. And if I'm empowered, Jesus is saying, if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? Who's empowering them? So when they cast out somebody. So the Pharisees were inconsistent for they had no problem with their followers when they cast out demons, but when Jesus cast out demons, oh, it must be Satan. A third argument against the whole accusation against Jesus is that it was rebellion against God. Jesus says in Matthew 5.28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Greek grammar also gives it a little bit, could give it a little bit different tone on that. It says, if, as is actually the case, or if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and by the way, I do cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's not this if clause. It's sort of like, well, if I do it, and you know that I am doing it, then how are you going to respond to that? 
So the accusation of the scribes and Pharisees was in direct opposition to what was actually taking place. It was, in fact, a rebellion against God or a rejection of Christ. They were in rebellion against him by claiming that the work of the Holy Spirit was the work of Satan. And these religious leaders were so filled with hate that they attributed all that Jesus did to Satan instead of God. So in Matthew 12, 29, Jesus also shows that their accusation was ridiculous. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless his, he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So he's saying, nobody can just walk into somebody else's house, especially if that person is stronger than them and plunder their house. First of all, they have to bind that person before they can do it. And so Jesus is saying, yes, the Lord of the house, Satan, can be a strong man, but not stronger than me. Not stronger than me. Um, Jesus came with the authority of heaven to defeat and destroy the works of Satan and to rescue valuable things from Satan. And what are the valuable things that he rescued? Us. Us. So their accusation against Jesus was illogical, inconsistent, um, rebellious, and ridiculous. And Jesus just in four quick points just shows how ridiculous that all was. Now, we understand it as being ridiculous. But, you know, trying to get into an argument with somebody else who's convinced or who has a hatred or is already you know, against something, you'll never win it by argument. So this isn't really just for, you know, the Pharisees. This is for the people who are following and saying, yeah, that all makes sense. Jesus next announces a very basic principle in our relationship to Jesus, and it's in verse 30. And I think that this is just a powerful statement for any of us. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So we may not be actively against Jesus, but if we're not working with him, we're opposing him. Because there's really just two choices. Either I'm with God or I'm not. Either I'm working with him or I'm not. Either he's my Lord and Savior or he's not. There's just, those are just the two options. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground here. There are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Paul stated it clearly in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, whom we all once lived. And so when I say Jesus rescued us from this, this is what Jesus rescued us from. 
We were all once a part of this. And we may be nice, normal, happy, kind people, but if you're not with Jesus, you are working against Jesus. So either you are serving Christ or you are serving the world. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not serving the world. I'm just serving myself. Go back to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you will see who you are actually serving. So Jesus made such clear claims and demands that it is impossible to be neutral or indifferent to Christ. You may think that I'm neutral, or people you may work with may think that they are neutral, but bottom line, if you're not with him, you are against him. So after making this announcement, Jesus turns to the question of forgiveness. In verse 31, So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. And that double emphasis there, even in this world or in the world to come, would be a Hebrew teaching that's saying, we're serious about this. It's not only for here, it is for eternity. There's, there's no going back on that one. Sort of a sidebar. Take a minute and write down, and you might want to write it down in code because people might be watching, the worst sin that you think you've ever committed. And you don't have to write it. You could just think it in your head. The worst sin you've ever committed. And we're not going to ask anybody to confess it. We're not going to ask anybody to come up and give a testimony about it. We don't want any details, but just think about it in your own head, mind. Because I come across people on a regular basis who say, how could God forgive this? How could God forgive me? How could God forgive that? Um, when I was in Michigan, there was a lady that came into my office and she said, I don't think I belong here. And I go, why don't you belong here? She goes, well, I've committed a horrible sin and I've committed a sin that I don't think anybody else here has ever committed. And I go, trust me. There's 500 singles here. I know that they have committed at least some of the same sins you have. And she goes, I don't think anybody's committed my sin and she goes can I tell you I go I don't need to hear it I don't have have you asked God for forgiveness she goes yes I have then you're forgiven have you repented of it she goes yes I have I go then you're forgiven but I need to tell somebody I go but you don't need to tell me because my mind doesn't need to hear those things because I can dwell on those things and it's just more and she goes but I need to tell me. okay you can tell me but you can't give me the details she goes, I murdered my husband. At that point, that was sort of a telling moment for me. <laughs> Do I say, whoa, you are right. Nobody's done that around here. <laughs> All right. And so I just said, what? <laughs> and so I said, i got to be honest with you. I, I don't know anybody else who's murdered their husband. <laughs> But I asked her, tell me the story. And what had happened, her husband was drunk and he had had a history of abusing 
her physically and abusing her daughter sexually. And he came home and abused them and left and went to a bar. The daughter, who was 15, had some 16-year-old friends that came over. And they saw the mother and they saw the daughter. And the kids said to the, to the mother, do you want us to do something about this? And she said, yes. They went to the bar, waited till he came out, and beat him. Left him alive in the parking lot, but he died overnight. So they were arrested and for involuntary manslaughter. And all the kids were released, and she was the one that was held, and she was found innocent I forget what she was actually found but she was on she never did prison time so what however it would happen but she goes but if they would have never done it if I hadn't said yes and I go well you're right they wouldn't have done it if you had ever said yes but God has forgiven you you've asked for forgiveness you've truly repented of that you belong with believers. You belong in that environment, in our environment. Ten years later, I went back to the church to do an anniversary type thing. And this lady comes up to me and she goes, do you remember me? I, I mean, you look familiar. And she goes, I'm the one that killed his husband, her husband. I go, oh, I remember now. And she, she goes, and this is my husband now. And I looked at him, I go, does he know? <laughs> and she goes, yep. Um, but to see the healing, to see the healing. Now, I don't know what you put down, but can someone be forgiven for genocide? Yes, Paul was. Can someone be forgiven for adultery? Yes, David was. Can someone be forgiven for murder? Yes, David was. Can he be forgiven for lying, stealing, and covetousness? Yes, David was, all at the same time. Can you be forgiven for betraying your best friend and abandoning them? Yes, Peter was. In the Bible, we find God forgiving not only the sins mentioned above, but also idolatry, gluttony, fornication, cheating, covenant-breaking, blasphemy, drunkenness, genocide, extortion, self-righteousness, gossip, Every other kind of sin imaginable we see forgiven. One of the greatest passages in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through Write it down if you don't know what it is. Because after naming all these very sins plus others, Paul adds these amazing words. And that is what some of you were. What some of you were. Um, and that is the greatest message of the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be restored to God. The bondage of sin that can be broken through Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of sin in our place and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us so that we might live lives of righteousness. Now, that's just basic. But the problem is, is that we will do certain things and somehow we feel we're disqualified. But that's only us. That's a lie. 
Because Jesus doesn't disqualify us. Um, but back to the passage. Critical to the passage, then, is the meaning of blasphemy. And the word refers to speaking wickedly or slanderously against God or his nature. It's not a major, a minor offense. It's a major one. To blaspheme the Son of Man would be to speak evil of him, to discredit him and his message in some way. And within the context of that argument, um, this would refer to the rejection of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. But that's not unforgivable because if somebody considers it further and repents and accepts it, they're forgiven. Um, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be the rejection of the same truth in full awareness of what is happening. It is the thoughtful, willful rejection of the work of the Spirit of God, even though there can be no other explanation. It's saying, you know what? I don't care who God is. I don't care what Jesus is doing. I don't care. I reject him and I shut myself off from any knowledge of God or any desire for God. So basically what he's saying, that when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you are severing yourself from the power of the Holy Spirit to ask for forgiveness. Because it's the Spirit moving in us that leads us to Christ. Because we are not the evangelist, the Holy Spirit is. And so if the Holy Spirit is the evangelist and you have cut yourself off from the Holy Spirit, there's no way you can come to Christ. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to happen. Now, if you are a believer, you can't commit that sin. Satan can test us, he can oppress us, he can do all kinds of things, but we can't commit the unforgivable sin. Why is it unforgivable? Forgivable? Because Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has done everything possible to bring a person to repentance. And if you die and you've never repented, that settles it. Um, now, people who sometimes wonder if they've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Because even the fact of you being concerned about committing the unforgivable sin means that you still have a conscience that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that is sensitive to God uh, from that perspective. So, but the sin becomes unpardonable because the person committing it is unwilling to walk the path of repentance or walk the path of forgiveness or walk the path that leads to pardon. And, it's a, and folks, it's a, it's a gradual descent. Um, it really is. First, the Holy Spirit is, agree, is grieved. We see that in Ephesians 4.30, where the Holy Spirit is grieved. And if unrepented, that leads to resisting of the Spirit, which we see in Acts 7.51, which if persisted, develops into quenching of the Spirit, which is 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And that sort of de develops how a person develops a seared conscience that no longer is sensitive or even aware of God which we see in 1 Timothy 4.2 so it's so easy to see how that just takes place in a non-believer 
which is why it is so important for believers to be there to be a light before a person gets to that point where they have developed a seared conscience. And again, the solution for sin is found in Psalm 95, 7 through 8. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's why we open up the service every Sunday with saying, worship begins with surrender. If we're open to God, we're not hardening our, hardening our hearts. So, now he moves on to the heart of the matter, verses 33 through 37. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Could you imagine being in a worship service and the pastor just sort of talking to you and all of a sudden he looks at all of you and says, you brood of snakes? That'd be sort of shocking, wouldn't it? Anybody ever hear of Keith Green? Keith Green was big in the 60s, 70s, uh, died in a plane crash, I believe. And, um, but he was sort of this prophetic type singer. And you can look on old YouTube videos of Keith Green. But he would be in a concert. And he'd be in a church in a concert. And he'd be playing and singing and he wrote all kinds of songs. And then he'd stop and just look at the people and call them a brood of vipers. You know, I mean, it was sort of like, whoa. <laughs> This guy's sort of serious. Um, but then he goes on and says, For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account of judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. This is just simple. It's like, your words are like the idiot lights on a dashboard. If they, they warn you if the words that you're coming out of your mouth are not honoring, not glorifying, are not beneficial to others, are condemning of others, then that's a warning sign that there's something wrong in the heart. So just because the idiot lights come up on your dashboard, it's not your dashboard that needs to be fixed. You know, when it says oil... It's not the, oh, i got to get a new light on my dashboard. No, you got to put oil in the car. When those words come out of our mouth, it reveals to us what's going on in our hearts. And if there's something that's coming out that shouldn't be coming out, that's when we stop and we say, you know what? I need to surrender this to God. I need, I need to start. This is a warning to me that something isn't quite right. Again, the language shifts to the second person. A hurt person will be held accountable for every careless word. Um, words that might seem insignificant, but are not. Then he talks about the heart. Um, that we need to have a radical change of heart to receive a new heart. That's what it means to receive Jesus Christ. To get a new heart. Jeremiah 
tells us what an unregenerate heart looks like in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Folks, why would we think that a person who doesn't know Christ would not have a deceitful heart for their own behaviors, would not be desperately sick, and who would not, and how could we ever understand it? And earlier it said, and we were those people. Which is why David prayed in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and, un and uphold me with a willing spirit. So that should be our prayer. God, renew in us a clean heart, a pure heart. If my words are revealing something that's not right, I can immediately go to God and have that changed. And then Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a powerful progression of verses that talk about when we recognize our heart needs to be renewed, when we pray about what our heart needs to be renewed, and then what Jeremiah promises in regards, or Ezekiel promises about our heart being renewed. And the way to do that is to believe in Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who came to forgive us of our sins, and we decide that we are going to truly live in his camp and not try to live a divided world. That it's either going to be all for him or not. We're either working with him or we're working against him. So what does all that mean for us today? First of all, I think all believers should be encouraged in their faith by passages like this that say, no matter where you've been, what you've done, where you are today, you can be forgiven. That you can be forgiven. That our words are like the warning light on dashboards. They tell us that something is wrong with our heart if the words aren't right. That there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Either you are with him or you're not. Um, so, I believe as Christians we are accountable to God for what we say, for what we do, and how we live. Choice is ours on how we're going to live our life for Christ. Father, we do praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together. Teach us what it means to truly walk in obedience to you, Lord. That our speech is filled with grace and seasoned with salt. That we are able to truly encourage others and that when we realize that there is something wrong in our heart, that we can immediately come to you and surrender it. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your transforming power in our lives to create 
something new out of old. To change hearts of stone, a stone into hearts of flesh. To fill us with your spirit. That we truly can live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you and beneficial to others. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask all these things. And our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,